How much transfer should we expect between skills? Transfer occurs when learning to do one thing helps you learn or do something else. Now, it's arguably the most important issue in educational psychology. After all, we spend years in the classroom. One would hope that the things that we learn make us more productive on the job, conscientious as citizens, or intelligent in our daily lives. Yet it turns out that the question of how much transfer is possible is really difficult to answer. This is because it depends on three different questions, each of which is itself incredibly complicated. First, how do we actually perform skills? Second, how do we acquire them? And third, what sorts of skills are actually used in real life? So around two years ago, I started a research project to learn everything I could about transfer of learning. It quickly became clear that understanding transfer depended on answering the other three questions, so my research broadened drastically. And despite two years of research and a lot of writing about transfer, including a chapter of my book, Ultra Learning, I still don't have a definitive answer for how much transfer we can expect. But I'd like to share at least how I've come to think about the issue so that you can think about it better yourself. Question one, how do we perform skills? Essentially, transfer is a product of overlap. We should expect transfer from one skill to another when something in those two skills is essentially the same. Nearly every well-articulated theory of transfer is an overlap theory. What differs between theories is the something which potentially overlaps. So let's look at some possible candidates. It could be broad mental faculties. So in this framework, reasoning or memory overlap across different skills. This theory likens the mind to a muscle that can be strengthened through many different types of practice. This would suggest that transfer is quite broad and that almost any strenuous mental activity should produce benefits that span many different tasks. Stimulus response. So perhaps per the behaviorists, the mind is merely a collection of habits and stimulus inevitably leads to a response. This view would suggest that transfer is extraordinarily limited. Even a superficial change in a situation would likely require learning a completely new skill. Propositions and productions. So theories like ACT-R argue that our brain stores skills in essentially two different forms, small chunks of factual knowledge and simple component procedures. Complex skills and knowledge are simply aggregates of these foundational pieces. Schemas. Schema-based theories claim that knowledge is organized into patterns far larger than individual actions or chunks. These patterns roughly correspond to kinds of templates with both fixed and variable components. For instance, you might have a birthday party schema in your head that includes birthday cake and presents, but only optionally to have clowns or pointy paper hats. Neural networks. The brain is made out of neurons, and we have some idea of how those neurons process information. Connectionist theories take these basic neuronal properties as a basic starting point and posit theories of learning based on them. So teasing out implications for transfer is harder here, but it would look like an overlap between the synaptic connectivity between two different skills. Activity systems. So perhaps transfer isn't in our heads at all, but is a property of our broader social and physical environments. So in this view, the person relies on their environment to perform a skill, and transfer fails when those environmental supports are altered or removed. Now, only the first two of these seem to be demonstrably false. The mind is not like a muscle, nor is it a simplistic stimulus response device. I find the information processing perspective of cognitive science to be the most persuasive. The mind is essentially computational, although quite different from computers made out of transistors, and answering the question of transfer depends on how the algorithms for skills are composed. 
Now, from this perspective, what seems safe to say is that skills can only reliably influence each other if they overlap in either their procedures or knowledge. If two skills don't use the same process and the knowledge they depend on is really different, then there shouldn't be much, if any, transfer. Question two, how do we acquire skills? How the mind represents skills is only one part of understanding transfer. There's also the issue of how we acquire those representations. Here, there's a few facts that seem pertinent. First, expert-novice differences. Experts appear to represent ideas at deeper levels than novices. The most likely explanation is that skills become more abstract as we encounter more examples and learn to generalize and distinguish concepts. Second, automaticity effects. Skills tend to recede from conscious awareness with experience. There are many different proposed mechanisms for this in psychology, but a consequence seems to be that how the expert thinks they perform a skill may not actually capture what they're really doing. Mnemonic effects. So another complication is that even if there is no overlap between two skills in expert performance, there might be an overlap at an earlier stage of acquisition. Vimla Patel has explored this in Medical Cognition. She comments on the finding that basic science tends to be used infrequently in clinical practice in medical settings. However, that doesn't mean that learning basic science is useless for doctors because it forms a kind of scaffolding for making sense of the clinical knowledge and thus aiding in its acquisition. Declarative to procedural transitions. So another characteristic progression in learning is for skills to start out as declarative knowledge, things that we know and think about explicitly, and shift to procedural knowledge, actions we take automatically. This transformation implies that skills may have different patterns of transfer at different levels of mastery as their dominant mental representation changes. Cognitive load. Different training activities work better for different stages of skill acquisition and working memory capacity. Studying an example, for instance, is better than solving a problem when cognitive load is really high, but the opposite is true when cognitive load is low. Efficiency of practice, then, is more than just about the question of overlap between two different skills, but also the stage of learning. So, early on, drills that practice component skills and structured lessons are more helpful, and later on, complex, more realistic practice may matter more. Now, on top of all these psychological details, there's the issue of pedagogy. There are often multiple methods for teaching something. Those methods have varying levels of generality and comply to a broad or narrow range of concepts. Transfer, then, is also depending on how something is taught. Now, my sense from reading this research is that there are a few pitfalls to avoid when thinking about it. First, don't judge transfer potential by the abilities of novices. Novices have a more superficial, context-bound understanding. That's more indicative of their phase of skill acquisition than the ultimate potential for transfer. Second, don't judge transfer on one-shot problem-solving tests. Problems often require many pieces of knowledge and procedures to solve correctly. Failure in a tested task could mean a complete failure of transfer, or it could also mean that a person is 99% of the way there, but they're just missing that one last piece. A better test is to train a person on task A, then on task B, and then measure the time savings on B from the knowledge and skills acquired in A. Finally, don't trust experts' perceptions of how they do a task. Experts are bad at introspecting their own cognitive procedures. We tend to underrate knowledge we've already acquired, seeing it as obvious. The ease of automaticity fools us into thinking that complex skills that we perform are really simple. This can lead to an inappropriate devaluing of basic skills. Question three, how are skills used in real life? Now, a final question is about the kinds of cognitive activities that people engage in during work, school, and daily life. 
While possibly the most relevant of the three, it is also the hardest to answer. Few studies have looked systematically at the kinds of cognitive skills people regularly employ at work and at home. Now, critics allege that much of what we learn in school has little real-world application. John Anderson reports in his textbook that employers surveyed either wanted very basic skills, which the educational system should already be teaching, or highly specific skills that no universal curriculum of education could aspire to teach. Similarly, the Wharton professor Peter Capelli argues that surveys show that employers tend not to value academic skills as much as we might think they should. Jean Lave found that mathematics taught in school is rarely what people actually used in their daily routines. And Brian Kaplan argues that much of education is signaling, showing others that we have smarts, conformity, and work ethic rather than cultivating those abilities for ourselves. From this perspective, the real purpose of schools is to sort people, not to teach useful skills. School knowledge doesn't apply to real life, Kaplan argues, because that's not the function it serves in society. Supporters of education argue that just because most skills aren't used doesn't mean that they're useless. We may become specialists of one sort or another in our life, but unless we assign everyone a career at birth, we want to maintain flexibility until our adult years. A side effect of this desire to maintain flexibility is that we end up learning a lot that we don't ever end up using or that is insufficiently concrete to apply in practice without further training. Similarly, education proponents point out that just because a skill isn't used doesn't mean it can't be used. Statistics is a powerful tool for reasoning about many important issues. The fact that people are statistically naive shows that we should be teaching them more, not declaring it impotent. Now, whether we apply a skill in a new context depends on the effort it requires. Practice can lower the effort of applying a skill in real life and create more situations where it is convenient to use. Now, imagine rewinding time before widespread literacy. It would be perverse to argue that reading isn't useful because most people don't seem to know how to read. My perspective is that while many academic subjects aren't used in real life, it's difficult to appreciate a subject until you learn it. Given that we generally cannot infer a domain of knowledge simply by encountering problems that apply it, this argument favors accumulating more knowledge than you think you'll actually need to use. Side note, transfer of effort, motivation, and non-cognitive skills. Thus far, I've been looking at transfer through a cognitive lens. A somewhat separate issue is the transfer of things like the ability to focus or study for long periods of time or the ability to resist temptations or the motivation to want to learn. Many of the same arguments that I've already used apply to non-cognitive skills as well. There's unlikely to be something like a general faculty you can improve with bulk training efforts for motivation, persistence, or focus. Now, that being said, the arguments about transfer here are somewhat different because these are not complex skills in the information processing sense of complex. Sitting at your desk and focusing for eight hours straight may be difficult, but it's not computationally demanding. So while I think it's ridiculous to imagine improving your memory by memorizing Latin verbs, it's not ridiculous to imagine improving your ability to focus by regularly sitting down to focus. Believing that cognitive skills are highly specific and should show limited transfer is not logically incompatible with a more general transfer of effort or persistence. Now, I might write or record a video of my fuller summary of my views later on this, but I want to clarify that while speaking French and being able to focus are both discussed as skills, they have different locuses of difficulty. French is hard because there are lots of words, grammar, and mental processes you need to be able to perform it. Focusing is hard because your naive reward center in your brain wants to go on Twitter instead. Summarizing my thoughts on transfer. So if you take one thing from this recording, it should be that transfer is complicated. As a practical takeaway, I would agree with roughly the following. 
First, transfer should be relatively minimal between unrelated skills. Second, transfer between related subjects depends on how much they overlap in content and procedures, with the caveat that those content and procedures may extend beyond what is traditionally thought of as the curriculum. Third, academic subjects can transfer to real life, but that this transfer can fail because we are missing components of the skill for applying it. This can include recognizing when an academically learned skill applies, for instance, applying algebra to a real life quantitative problem, when we haven't automated the skill enough to pass the cost-benefit threshold for using it. Many academic skills are inert, but they're still potentially helpful for accelerating learning that builds upon them. So all else being equal, practice on more cognitively similar tasks should maximize overlap and thus future transfer. However, there are important exceptions to this because of cognitive load, retrieval effects, and overall difficulty. Therefore, identifying the most beneficial practice activity may be more complicated than simply matching it to whatever activity you're trying to get good at. Thanks for listening to this episode. More episodes like this can be found by searching for Scott Young Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and on most other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider rating my show as it helps other people find out about it. More of my work can be found on my website at scotthyoung.com.